Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest in our series of podcasts, The Crude Report. I'm Tom Reed, VP of Crude and Products for China at Argus, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Fife, our group chief economist and top brain. David and I are going to be attempting to answer the question, EU oil embargo, is it just an eastbound funnel? Um, David, this is really the key question, isn't it? By essentially embargoing imports of Russian oil, albeit with with country-specific carve-outs, is the EU simply allowing other countries with which it competes economically, if not strategically, to snap up very, very cheap oil? Is is the EU shooting itself in the foot here? I, I think it would be great, actually, uh, to start, if if maybe you could bear to, to summarise the current state of play. What's the EU done? Has it done it in concert with the US, the UK and Western allies in Asia, that sort of thing? OK, Tom, thanks very much. Hi. No, I, I think you're absolutely right to raise the sort of political dimension. I mean, we had in early May European Commission President von der Leyen announcing to great fanfare that there was an imminent embargo on oil uh, deliveries into the European Union that was imminent. And of course, what then followed was several weeks of fairly tortuous negotiations, sometimes seemingly quite heated, notably on the part of some of the Central European countries who receive pipeline oil from Russia and therefore have limited alternative sources of supply. But in early June, what was announced was that there would be an outright embargo on crude oil. And remember, the EU historically has bought about 2.3 million barrels a day of crude from Russia. So the seaborne portion, about one and a half million barrels per day, uh, from the end of this year will be subject to embargo. So no more purchases by EU member countries. There's a carve out for pipeline crude supply, which historically is sort of 800,000 barrels a day or so that normally comes down the Druzhba friendship pipeline into Central and Western Europe. Now, effectively, the carve-out is going to allow Hungary, the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic to carry on buying crude beyond the end of this year. And that's probably 250, 300,000 barrels per day. So the seaborne portion will be cut off from the end of this year in terms of, of, of EU buyers. And then, you know, 1.3 million barrels per day of, of refined products, which EU countries normally purchase from Russia, you know, that that will be phased out by sort of around February 2023. So much for the sort of oil embargo bit of it. And, you know, that's aimed at essentially trying to curb the, the sort of eight to 10 billion a month that Russia receives in terms of revenues. And remember, you know, the whole justification for going for an oil embargo is that oil represents 40% of total Russian export revenues. So it's it's sort of, uh, you know, three times as much on a monthly basis as Russia gets for its gas sales globally. So that's that's why oil is being is being targeted. But almost more important than the embargo itself was the stipulation that EU and potentially UK and other associated European countries would be prevented from providing 
maritime insurance for cargoes of Russian oil wherever they are headed. And, you know, obviously in the context of what we've been seeing over the last two to three months with elevated sales into Asia in particular, that on paper could, if anything, be even more sort of uh, pervasive an impact on the market than the, the, the EU embargo itself. So that, you know, I mean, our, our, our view is probably that, you know, that the, the market could deal with this sort of embargo, the impacts of this embargo, the loss of maybe two, two and a half million barrels a day net, assuming that flows into Asia were able to continue. But if they're not, then obviously that that would be correspondingly much more bullish for the market. But I mean, you know, I wonder if I could sort of throw the the hot potato back to you. And, you know, because we've seen China, India and others picking up the slack, buying more Russian discounted crude. You know, is this opportunistic? How long can this continue? What and and, and how would China and India, for example, consider the the potential uh, insurance ban in particular? Is that going to be effective going forward? I mean, th- this is really interesting because, of course, and it's worth just as an addendum to that whole thing about sanctions, it, it, the EU also sanctioned the provision of these kind of financial services, broking insurance, reinsurance, for any deals done after the 4th of June, there's this six month wind down period. So in theory, you know, you you can only get insurance now if you are doing it for a, a cargo that you agreed to buy before the 4th of June. Yeah. And certainly in the months immediately after the invasion, so I'm talking March, April, and before this ban came into effect, we saw an absolute surge in loadings of Russian crude for Asia, for China and India in particular. Um, on the face of it, you know, the, the price of physical North Sea dated, uh, the benchmark for Atlantic Basin crude, it's it's pretty stubbornly stuck above $120 a barrel. It's very, very high. On the face of it, that should choke off these eastbound flows of Russian crude uh, because it suggests that those cargoes would command far higher prices in Europe now. But our friends at Vortexa estimate that China and India uh, will receive each, you know, 1.2 million barrels a day of Russian crude by sea this month. That's a relatively modest increase for China, which has always been Russia's main customer. But it's a huge step up for India, you know, which only took 80,000 barrels a day before the war and is now pretty much at parity with China in terms of a market for Russian crude. Typically, how that's sort of panned out is we see lots of lots more Espo blend, light sweet Espo blend going into China th- from Northeast Asia. That's the Northeast Asian market. But vast amounts of medium sour Urals heading to India from the Black Sea and the Baltics. Now, a lot of those cargoes arriving in June will have traded before the EU's 3rd or 4th of June uh, cutoff date. They traded back in March and April when the physical differential for Russian grades fell off a cliff. You know, it's now the the the, the spot discount for Urals versus North Sea data is something in the region of $35 a barrel. It's a huge, huge discount. And it does appear that purchases of uh, Russian of cr- Russian crude by India and China have actually fallen slightly 
in response to sanctions, albeit not by much. Most of the, uh, the, the decline seems to have occurred in mid-May, uh, when the big commodity trading houses stopped acting as intermediaries between Russian producers and end users. But as I say, the decline has been in the region of 300,000 barrels a day. And we're talking about sales overall of more than 2 million barrels a day. Uh, and most of the decline seems to have come from India, where there is a significant dependence on UK markets for reinsurance, as well as use or membership of the International Group of Protection and Indemnity Clubs, IGP and I clubs, based in the city of London, which, which helped ship owners to pool their insurance risk and claim to represent 90% of the world's ocean going tonnage. But reinsurance is another really sticky point. Even Chinese insurance companies tend to use UK-based uh, reinsurers I think it's interesting that for now, the UK has not followed the EU's lead in sanctioning provision of financial services. Although, as you mentioned, uh, we're expecting some announcements to come out of the G7 meeting over the weekend. And we are recording this before the G7 summit. So our listeners do have an advantage in possibly knowing the outcome of those <laughs> talks uh, while we continue to speculate wildly. But and, you know, in theory, that 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 leaves a, a loophole wide enough to sail a VLC see-through. But sanctioning the cargo rather than the vessel itself, I think is a pretty smart move, as you say, potentially very effective. Ship owners uh, may be willing to risk sanctions being imposed on 20-year-old vessels at the end of their shelf life. You know, these, these are ships that have put, already put in a useful lifetime of service and are now nearing their sort of uh, natural scrappage point, and maybe they will end up carrying pariah cargoes like Urals. But if that cargo or the vessel are uninsured, uh, and the insurers themselves can't lay off that risk in the reinsurance market, a lot of ports won't allow that vessel to dock. Uh, and this is something I think that does concern buyers in 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 India and China as well. There are likely to be workarounds. Uh, one clearly unattractive alternative is simply to sail a ship without insurance. That is that is very risky, dangerous, and very few ship owners would want to consider that. Another might be to offer sovereign insurance for cargoes. This is something that Japan provides, albeit theoretically, for imports of Iranian crude. You know, a couple of years ago, they they said they would provide up to eight and a half billion dollars worth of insurance for imports of Iranian crude. And Japanese firms don't actually, I don't think, import Iranian crude, but Tokyo's offer uh, still stands. And, and cargo insurance is a relatively small percentage of any given cargo value. It's usually a couple of cents in the barrel. So, well, probably within the scope of national governments to underwrite. And, and, and you know, you, you alluded to, you know, from, from an EU perspective, the, the potential fly in the ointment almost that they're now confronting, which seems to be a, a US administration which has sort of woken up to the potential threat that this insurance ban might provide in terms of really restricting Russian flows into the broader international market. As you say, you know, the coming weekend, we're going to see the G7 summit in Bavaria. We've got a Biden administration that is thinking, can we suspend our domestic U.S. gasoline taxes to try and provide some relief? Do we look at export restrictions on, on U.S. products exports to 
try and you know help the US domestic consumer. And the final element they're now considering and trying to bolt on to the EU sanctions package is the concept of a, a price cap for Russian exports. In other words, to say, if you, the Asian buyer of a cargo, agree to pay below a yet-to-be-determined price related to production costs, potentially, you know, we'll allow you to use and we'll allow European insurance and reinsurance providers to provide cover for your vessels. It sounds a very, very messy sort of set of you know conditions to mm. to 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 put on flows but it's clearly a sign that the us has sort of woken up to the risk that you know prices could even potentially be headed higher if an outright mm. ban on insurance was was put in place i mean at argus we've in the past before the embargo even was put into place in the eu we made an argument that maybe more market related mechanisms a tariff rather than outright bans or embargoes might be more economically efficient. But nonetheless, we are where we are. And this is what the, the EU has, has, has put in place. So as you say, our listeners may uh, be in a better position than we are, uh, depending on when you know, the, 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 the webinar is, is broadcast. Um, but I suppose the, the broader question is, you know, does this all really matter if we're, you know, the Chinese economy is stuttering in the face of renewed COVID-19 outbreaks and problems, you know, uh, dismantling lockdowns, the global economy is confronting rising interest rates. And, you know, would President Putin really pay much attention to these sanctions in any case or just press on regardless? Yeah, I mean, that. I mean, there are so many questions. I have so many questions about this. <laughs> but I mean, they, you know, the, the, the price cap, it potentially a relatively sensible solution, but the devil is going to be in the details. I suspect even in, in the immediate wake of this uh, summit in Bavaria, a lot of those details will yet to have been thrashed out. And, you know, it's quite clear that one a one size price cap might not fit all, right? This is why we see crude moving from the Baltics to China, it's because there are very, very different places in each location. There's a very, very high price at the point of delivery and a very low price uh, at the point of loading and uh, companies prepared to risk the uh, social or political you know, um, blowback from moving those cargoes do, do make a lot of money from doing it. Um, so th there, there, there's going to have to be some sort of sweet spot uh, when the G7 comes to discussing exactly where it's going to put this price cap. And it'll be really interesting to see the mechanics of how that works. I think uh, politically, it's it's quite a good idea because, of course, you know, you're punishing supply without punishing demand. And, and this issue does threaten to drive a wedge between the West and India or, or worsen relations with China. Uh, and potentially the price cap idea might be something that could appeal to those consumer countries. But, you know, to your to your other point. Yeah. I mean, the global economy is not in a happy place right now. Certainly in China, even if you could 
um, dramatically divert huge amounts of Russian crude to that market? Are you essentially pushing on a string? You know, if if the Chinese market cannot absorb it, and I think it's very clear that despite having come out of lockdown, despite having ended those very devastating lockdowns in Shanghai, Beijing in March, April, in June, the economy is still struggling. I and mean, it might be, you know, not until uh, later this summer that we really begin to see China's economy start to recover. And when it does, uh, as you point out, it's going to be it's going to have to be domestically driven um, because uh, inflation is already starting to eat into those kind of demand for manufacturing uh, exports from China. So Chinese and, factories may not be humming to the extent that they used to be. And, and you know, as China goes, so goes the world, you know, real concerns about whether central banks in the Atlantic Basin can, you know, modulate their uh, their rate rises to prevent outright recession. And, and, you know, we tend to forget, you know, in terms of oil demand globally, you know, uh, growth in oil demand historically is hinged on global GDP growth of about 2% real, not 0% real. Current forecasts have at best about 3% global GDP growth this year and next year, and those have been revised down probably by, for this year, by about two percentage points over the last 12 months. So we're not far from an area that actually could result in fairly anemic oil demand growth in 2022 and 2023. So I yeah. suspect, Tom, we're going to have to come back to the whole issue of uh, of the embargo and the price caps. And once demand we know destruction. And demand destruction. So I guess yeah. we may revisit this subject in a future uh, a future podcast. Yeah, but as you, uh, I think as you, you're you're suggesting, we are now we are comprehensively out of time, and we must draw a veil over proceedings. Thank you, everybody who's dialed in to listen. Uh, do do join us again for future editions of the Crude Report, and I hope you've all enjoyed this one very much. Thank you from me and David. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.